Well, good morning, Piney Ridge Church. Invite you to return to your seats and join me in prayer. Lord God, we need you this morning. I need you for nothing I do this morning is of any value without the Holy Spirit being at work in it and through it. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause our hearts to be hearts that receive your word. And Lord, I pray that you would work in all of us to fight for faith and to fight against unbelief. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are visiting, I'll introduce myself. I'm Pastor Steve, one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. It's my privilege to bring this mes message to you this morning. In 2015, Sandy and I were planning a vacation trip to North Carolina, and I was a little bit excited because we had a, a relatively new Civic, and, and I'd never taken it on a trip, and I wanted to see if it really got the gas mileage that was advertised. So a few days before the trip, I took it to the car dealership and got an oil change, and they came back to me and said that some part that connected some doohickey to some thingamabob was defective and needed to be replaced. And they said, but we don't have the replacement park in stock. We're going to have to order it and have it come in, but we'll have it tomorrow, and we'll replace it tomorrow, and you'll be all set. I said, great. The next day, didn't hear from them, so later in the day I called, and they said, well, the truck didn't come in today, but it'll be here tomorrow. Well, tomorrow came and went, and they said, it'll be here Friday. Now I began to get a little nervous because we were leaving on Saturday morning at 4, 4 a.m. So early, Saturday, early Friday morning, I called, and I said, did the park come in? They said, uh, no, it didn't, but it'll be here tomorrow, and we can get it put in tomorrow. Now, of course, tomorrow was the day we were leaving, right? Now, in that moment, I knew several things. I knew that God is sovereign over every event of my life. I knew that nothing happens by accident, and I knew that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And knowing that, my response should have been courteous, Friendly, loving, peaceable. Instead, I screamed into the phone something like, Listen here! I want to take that car on vacation tomorrow, and you're going to fix it. You're going to make it happen today. You see... I knew those doctrines in my head, right? But in my heart, I didn't really believe that God was working everything for my good. You understand? 
In my heart, I believed a lie. I believed that I needed to seize control, take control of the situation, and I needed to force my will to be done. And that believing of that life caused me to respond in disobedience to God. Sin is a result of unbelief. That's one of the main messages this morning from this passage. Now, unbelief doesn't just mean a lack of belief in the existence of God. Unbelief can encompass believing lies about God. Unbelief can encompass believing that God really isn't sovereign over everything in my life. It can mean believing God is sovereign, but he doesn't always work for my good. It's a lack of faith. It's accepting Satan's lies about God. How about this one? We lack the faith to believe that our suffering is really working for our good, that it is really working our sanctification, that it is refining our faith as gold is refined in the fire and will work for us an eternal weight of glory. We fail to believe that, and so we do everything in our power to avoid it. When we're doing that, in our hearts, we're really saying to God, I don't trust you. I don't think you're doing a very good job at holding this universe together. I think I would do a much better job working for my good. And so we try to usurp control from God. In fact, we try to be God. And as I said in today's passage, we'll see that unbelief leads to disobedience. And disobedience can lead to falling short of the rest that God has promised to his people. The theme for this morning's passage is that the fear of not entering God's rest should motivate us, motivate us all, to fight against unbelief. The fear of not entering God's rest, or as we're going to see, the fear of falling short of God's rest should motivate us all to fight against unbelief. And my prayer is that this message will cause all of you to examine your hearts, to see if there are pockets of unbelief there, and that it will cause you to fight against that. And it will cause you to look around at your family and the people in the church and fight against unbelief in their life by encouraging them and exhorting them to fight for faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this message will spur you on to share the gospel with the people who come into your spheres of influence that it will spur you on to that exhortation and encouragement that Jason preached about last week. And that will motivate you to pray for the church. 
I invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Today's passage comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, and goes on through chapter 4, verse 2. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we look at verses 16 to 19, I need feel like I need to give you a little bit of background. If you were here last week, you'll recall that Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 is a quotation from Psalm 95. And as Jason said last week, Psalm 95 is a commentary on the disobedience of the people of Israel between the time of their miraculous rescue from Egypt up until the time that they were camped on the border of the promised land. And despite the fact that God had repeatedly shown his awesome power to the people of Israel through rescuing them from Egypt and through the Red Sea and then drowning the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea and providing water from a rock when they were thirsty and providing food, manna in the wilderness for 40 years, although up in this time it only been a year, providing manna every single day except the Sabbath, two helpings on, on Friday, when they were hungry, fought against the armies that attacked them, had demonstrated his glorious majesty on top of Mount Sinai when he thundered the words of the Ten Commandments. And although they had heard the rest of the law through Moses, despite all of this, the Hebrews repeatedly disobeyed him, doubted him, and despised him by grumbling and complaining about him and about his appointed leader, Moses, and by worshiping gods other than Yahweh. And yet, every time they sinned, Moses interceded on behalf of the people, and God graciously forgave them. Now, he punished them. Forgiving doesn't mean you escape punishment kids, but God graciously forgave them and continued to promise that he would be their God and they would be his people and he would take care of them. But, and so here they are, 
They're on the border of Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that he would give to their descendants. And God has said, go in and take the land. So they're camped on the border, and they decide they choose a spy, a person from each tribe, 12 men, to go into the land and gather intel and come back and report. When they came back and reported, they were unanimous in saying, this is a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. They brought back big, a big thing of grapes. They look how great the food is in this land. But they were divided, ten against two, on what they should do. The ten said, but the people of the land, they're, they're like giants. We felt like grasshoppers next to them. They're going to squash us. They're going to kill us dead. It would have been better if we'd have stayed in Egypt in slavery than to come here and die in this strange land. They doubted that God would be faithful to his promises. The other two, Joshua and Caleb, believed that God would empower them to, to take the land. Caleb says, let us go at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Because he had faith in God to do what he had promised. And he believed that God would give them victory over their enemies, no matter how big they were. But the people were swayed by the ten. And they rose up against Moses and threatened to stone him and choose another leader to lead them back to Egypt. And God was angry with the people of Israel, and not for the first time, he said to Moses, I'm just going to wipe them out and start all over with you and your descendants. And as he had done previously, Moses interceded for the people and pleaded with God to forgive the people, and we can see God's response to Moses in Numbers 14, 20 to 23. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. God is a gracious God. They didn't deserve the forgiveness. But, truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. The consequences of the disobedience of the people of Israel was death. And God led them around the wilderness for the next 40 years. And in those 40 years, every one of the people that were 20 years old or older at the time of the rebellion dropped dead in the wilderness, except Joshua and Caleb, who were permitted 40 years later to enter the promised land because of their faith. And as I said, Psalm 95 interprets that for us. It's a commentary on that disobedience. And the author of Hebrews now is going to use, continue to use, as, uh, from last week, 
the Psalm 95 to interpret those events for us. And so, beginning in verse 16, in 16 through 18, the writer asks three questions, kind of catechism-like, about Psalm 95. The first question is in verse 16. Who were those who heard the word of God and rebelled? Answer, all those who left Egypt, led by Moses. As I said, they had heard the voice of God. They had seen his mighty power. But they rebelled. They believed a lie, and it doomed them. Verse 17, question 2. With whom was God provoked? Answer, those who sinned. That's an important relationship to notice. God is provoked, angry at sin and at sinners. We need to understand that. God justly is angry with sin and sinners. He's angry with you because of your sin, because God created you for his glory. God created you to, to be his image and every one of us have despised him. Every one of us have acted on our unbelief and disobeyed him and sinned. It says that they incurred the wrath of God because of their unbelief. Verse 18, question 3, to whom... Did God swear that they would not enter his rest? And the answer was those who were disobedience. Again, we see unbelief leading to disobedience. They were unable to enter the promised land. And then verse 19 gives the conclusion to be drawn from that catechism. Verse 19 says that they were unable to enter God's rest. Because of unbelief. That word unable to enter, that phrase unable to enter is interesting. It's not like the, the people of Israel got to the border of Canaan and said, let's, let's talk about this. Do we really believe or not? No, we don't believe, so we're not going to enter. That's not how it went down. It, it would be kind of like this. Sandy and I go to a ball game, and I buy tickets for Nosebleed Heaven. That's the only place I buy tickets for. And I don't know if you've ever been to Bush Stadium, but you've got to ride an escalator up three different segments. And when you ride that first escalator up, and you think, well, maybe I'll get off here, that's where all of the posh suites are, all-inclusive, okay? And they have ushers standing there to keep you from getting into those suites unless you have the proper ticket. So if I said to Sandy, you know, I'd really like to sit in one of those, but I'm not going to because I didn't buy a ticket. It's not like I've got all this integrity and I've decided I'm not going to go in there because I don't have the ticket. No. <laughs> if I went in and tried to get in there, the ushers would say, no, you don't have a ticket. You're unable to sit in the posh suites. That's what happened here at Canaan. They didn't have the right ticket. They didn't possess the faith that they needed to possess in order to enter the promised land. The, 
Hebrews says they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. And you may recall Hebrews 3.12 from last week. Take care, or as Jason taught us, see to it that no evil and unbelieving heart takes residence among you. Take care, Piney Ridge Church, lest any of you have an evil and unbelieving heart. Be on guard for any sign of unbelief in your own hearts and also in the hearts of those in the church. Exhort and encourage one another to fight for faith, to believe that God will do what he has promised and refute the lies of Satan. What should you believe? Well, believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross to pay for the sins of his people, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and that he will one day return and claim the church as his bride and inaugurate his kingdom. Refute the lies that say, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher, well-meaning, but perhaps a bit misguided. Or the lies that say, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. His disciples stole the body and hid it. Or, or they just made the whole thing up. Refute those lies. Believe that God will save those who hold fast to the cross of Jesus as their only hope of salvation, that he will raise them from the dead, and that they will spend eternity in the fullness of joy in his presence. Refute the lies that you have to do something more to earn your salvation. Refute the lies that this life is all there is, and so I need to spend all my money and all my energy to try to enjoy my best life now. Refute those lies. Believe that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Refute the lies that God is not powerful enough to exert his will in every part of your life. Refute the lies that he is not interested in your good. Rather, believe that for the Christian, all suffering, all suffering works for your sanctification, refining your faith and preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. And listen, refute the lie that you deserve better than what God has given you. Beloved, we must fight for faith. We must put on the armor of God and stand firm against Satan and his lies. And we must encourage one another in these truths. 
We must exhort one another. Don't give up. Hold fast to Jesus because he is holding fast to you. And what should motivate us to fight for faith like this? The answer may surprise you. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 1, that what should motivate us to fight for faith is fear. Now, if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, notice that it starts with the word, therefore, telling us that we ought to go back into chapter 3 and pull from it the support for what he's about to say. So it kind of goes like this. In light of the fact that the people of Israel were unable to enter the promised land because of belief, of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Or as the Greek literally says, lest any of you should seem to fall short of it. Well, the first thing to notice there is that God's promise of rest still stands today. For the people of Israel, God's promise of rest was primarily a place, the land he had promised to Abraham that he would give to his descendants. But when they got to that place, he would give them rest from their enemies. He would bless their toil and give them bountiful harvests, and he would cause their their flocks to increase. And so it's not just a place for them, but it's also a state of, um, not a state of mind, really, a state of spirit, I would say. It's a settled confidence that God will do what he said he would do, that God would take care of them, and he would be their God, that he would dwell among them, and they would be his people, so he would take care of him of them. Well, the author assures us that God's promise of rest still stands. It wasn't just for those people in the Old Testament. It wasn't just for the people of God then. God's promise of rest stands for the people of God today. Even in our present world, as we still live in, in a fallen world, as Nathan told us earlier, or it might have been Jason. I get them mixed up. One has hair, one doesn't. <laughs> Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from what? Rest from having to try harder to earn my salvation. Rest from trying to be in control of everything in my life. Oh, it's exhausting, isn't it? Rest from feeling like everything depends on me. Come to me, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find Rest for your souls. But the rest that we experience today is not the complete fulfillment, is it? 
Because for the people of God today, a rest, the rest of God is a place. It's that new heaven and earth where we are headed. It's that better country of which we are citizens. And so we long to be there in that time in the kingdom of God where we will find rest from sorrow and rest from pain and rest from death. And oh, think of it. Rest from our struggle with sin. God's promise of rest still stands. God's invitation to enter into his rest is still there today. But it will not always be there. For as surely as God shut the door of the ark after Noah and his family entered, God will one day shut the door to the entrance of eternal rest. And so if you are stuck in unbelief today, I plead with you while it is still today to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and your salvation from the wrath of God. Do it today because not one of us is assured of tomorrow. Not in this life. Therefore, the author says, since God's promise of rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have fallen short of God's rest. We need to note here that verses 1 through 11 is an exhortation to the people of God to strive to enter God's rest. And so Jason will have much more to say about God's rest next week. But here at the beginning of that exhortation, he gives us a motivation for striving to enter that rest. And what it is, is that fear that we should fall short or that anyone among us should fall short. That should be like an alarm bell ringing. And you know when it rings? It rings when we are beset with sin. When we are living in a, in a, in a slumber and we are sinning against God, that is when the Holy Spirit empowers our conscience to be like a smoke detector for us. Smoke detectors are loud and obnoxious. Let me just tell you, Sandy and I went to Troy to babysit our kids for a couple weeks, a couple nights, our grandkids. And I came back on Saturday night because I was preaching the next day. So I came back a day early and I walked into the house and every smoke detector in our house was sending out that ear-splitting alarm sound. And the obnoxious little voice going, fire, fire, fire. And I had no idea how to turn them off. I called Josh Monroe, and he had no idea how to turn them off. So I finally called the fire department, and they got it stopped. I didn't realize that I had to replace, after about nine years, I had to replace every smoke detector in my house. I thought, just keep replacing the battery. They were good to go, right? 
Well, it turns out I was wrong. Thanks to Kevin Hawk for coming over and helping me with that. But my point is those things are obnoxiously loud and annoying until you are in a deep sleep and your house catches fire. And then you're grateful that they are loud and obnoxious because they wake you from your slumber so that you're not consumed in the flames, right? Oh, you see where this is going. When we are beset with sin, our consciences should be like a smoke detector to arouse us from our slumber so that we repent so that we aren't in danger of missing God's eternal rest. The fear of missing God's eternal rest is important to us. It's necessary for us. But it should not be a paralyzing fear. Brian DeLay, one of our covenant members, is a pilot. And I'm confident, Brian has never said these words to me, but I feel like I can put these words in his mouth. Brian is fearful of crashing the plane. Okay? But he loves flying, so his fear of crashing the plane doesn't keep him from flying. It doesn't paralyze him. But what it does do is it motivates him to go down the checklist every time before he flies to make sure everything's in working order. And as much as is up to him, make sure that he's not going to crash the plane. That's what this fear should do for the believer. It should motivate us. It should spur us to action. To first of all, fight against the unbelief in our own heart. Pray like the man in Mark did, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to fight against it. And then to pray for the other people in our family and in our church and encourage them and exhort them. Three actions that it should motivate. Sharing the gospel for fear anybody in our family or our friends or in our church should fall short of God's eternal rest. Second action, encourage and exhort each other as Jason so passionately preached to us about last week. And third, pray. I'll get back to prayer in a minute. Verse 2 gives us more motivation to spur us into action. The author urges us to reflect on the fact that of all those men and women who failed to reach the promised land, every one of them heard the word of God. They heard the message that he would be their God. And if they would trust him and obey him and devote their worship to him alone, he would lead them into his rest. 
Every one of them heard the good news. Two believed. Hundreds of thousands were not united to Caleb and Joshua in faith. Caleb and Joshua were the two who listened and therefore fell dead in the wilderness and failed to enter God's rest. They heard, but the message didn't benefit them because they didn't respond in faith. That's a sobering word for us. It tells us that people can sit in these seats week after week, month after month, year after year, and hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed and never be united by faith to those who have entered God's rest. That is a sobering word for pastors, I can testify to you that it brings us to tears. But that's also a sobering word for parents. Sobering word for husbands and wives. Teenagers, that should be a sobering word for you. You can sit here week after week and hear the gospel but unless you respond in faith, you're in danger of falling short of God's rest. It should be a sobering word for every member of Piney Ridge Church, lest any of us should seem to fall short of God's rest. And that's the reason that we should devote our lives to sharing the gospel in our family, in our church, in our neighborhoods, around the world. That's why we should devote ourselves in the church to exhortation and encouragement of each other. Hang on, brother. Believe. Fight for faith. But that, I think most of all, is why we should pray. Because, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how much we share the gospel, and it doesn't matter how much we encourage and exhort if the Holy Spirit is not at work in it. It is God who saves. And so parents ought to be on their knees pleading with God to save their children. Husbands praying for wives and wives for husbands. All of the church should be on their knees praying for each other. Praying, we ought to all have a burden. God has put a burden on my heart for the teenagers of Piney Ridge Church. We should be praying for them. I would love one day to see about 20 of them up here to be baptized. That's our calling. So Piney Ridge Church, develop a healthy, reverential fear of God's wrath for sinners 
And let that fear motivate you to be on guard against unbelief in your own heart. But also on guard against unbelief in the church. So one last really quick promise, really quick word. Don't miss the grace of God in Numbers 14. We already talked about the fact that he forgave, he pardoned their sin. But what about Joshua and Caleb? Two entered God's rest. Hundreds of thousands fell dead in the wilderness. What was the difference? Joshua and Caleb didn't deserve to enter God's rest any more than the others. Do you hear that? That next generation didn't deserve to enter the promised land any more than their parents did, but by the grace of God, they did. And just like that group, there are two groups of people here this morning. One group has trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, and God punished Jesus for their sin. The other group is still stuck in unbelief. And if they stay in unbelief, God's going to punish them for their sin. We all, these two groups both deserve to be punished. Do you understand that? Both groups deserve to spend an eternity experiencing the wrath of God for their sin, but by the awesome, amazing grace of God, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ will have their sins punished in Jesus Christ. The sins that they committed were laid on him, and he paid the penalty. The promise of God's rest still stands today. So if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, and we come to take communion, I encourage you to stay in your seats and to pray and ask God to open your hearts, to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh that's not hard-hearted against God. I will be in the back. You're welcome to come talk to me. I'll also be back there for anyone who needs prayer. I would love to pray with you. But if you're not trusting Jesus, if, if you don't want to come talk to me, you can grab someone afterward. You can write on a connection card. I want to know more about the gospel and put it in the offering box in the back. Or you can email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org. And we would love to share the gospel with you and tell you what it means. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you've had that profession of faith affirmed by baptism, then you're welcome, whether you're a member or not, you're welcome to join us in communion this morning. At Piney Ridge Church, we exit our rows to the left. We come down to one of these tables. We pick up the elements of communion. We take them back to our seats, and we take them um, either individually or with our family or with friends around us. If, if you don't know anybody, just say, hey, can I take communion with you? And we just kind of have a little prayer together. 
As you take communion, I want you to first of all give thanks for the unity that we have, that we have been united with Christ in faith, that we are all united together by faith. But then I also want you to make a commitment that you will share the gospel, that you will encourage and exhort your fellow church members to fight for faith. And I want you to commit to pray. Pray for your family, pray for your friends, pray for the church, that we will fight for faith and fight against unbelief. For those of you who should, you may now come to the Lord's table.